Please turn with me to John's Gospel, chapter 20. As we'll note in just a few minutes, each of the Gospels contains a narrative account of the resurrection of Jesus. And each of those narrative accounts contains some unique details. And there are some deeply encouraging, wonderful details concerning the resurrection to be found in this account. So read with me at verse 1 of John 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter, And reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and to your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for your word and thank you for what it is that brings us here to this place today. Come by your spirit, walk among us, speak to our hearts, encourage our hearts, even as so tenderly and lovingly 
you gave such deep and great encouragement to Mary. Would you do the same for us? We pray in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Just for future reference, I don't bite. I mean, you're more than welcome to come up here and and be close, you know. I suppose that the Lord's Prayer is the prayer that is the most familiar to us, a prayer that we all uh, can say pretty much by heart. But there's another little prayer that is, I suspect, equally familiar. Um, I have a very, very close friend who is not a believing person who has said of this prayer, it's the only prayer I know how to pray. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. What about that? What about that third line in this little prayer? If I should die before I wake. If I should die before I wake. Easter is a day for celebration, isn't it? And thus far, this has been a celebration. Thank you, Julie. Thank you, singers. Thanks for the work that you've invested, the time you've given to help us this morning to worship. Thank you, congregation, for singing that fills this room and that encourages my heart as I listen. This is a day for celebration. That's why we're here. That's why we put Easter lilies in this room. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. I think I've made this connection for you in the past. But if you look at the blooms, they look like trumpets, don't they? Trumpets are sounded to make announcements. They aren't quiet instruments. You can mute them. You can muffle their sound. You can take a mute. You can stick it in the bell of the trumpet. You can soften its sound with the mute, but that isn't what trumpets are for. Trumpets are brassy and loud and noisy, and you use them to make announcements. So what are the Easter lilies announcing? What are the Easter lilies announcing? Edvard Munch is a name some of you may know. He was a very famous Norwegian painter whose most famous painting, I suppose, is The Scream. Edvard Munch said this, From my rotting body, flowers shall grow, and I am in them. And that is eternity. Is that what the Easter lilies are announcing this morning? They're heralding the great good news that my death 
means more nutrients for them. I have a friend who bought a home here in Vero Beach. He told me once that when he gets older, and he, he also is not a believing person, when he gets older, he'd like to buy a condominium in Grand Harbor overlooking the lagoon so that he can sit on a third-story balcony and watch the sunrise as his life comes to its close. And then... Food for maggots. Food for Easter lilies, one or the other or both. Folks, Easter Sunday, I was out on my bike yesterday. It was a beautiful day. Some of you know that I ride up and down A1A. I passed Grand Harbor, and cars were lined up all along A1A, and I know why they were there. They were there because there was an Easter egg hunt at Grand Harbor for kids. I have fond memories of hiding Easter eggs. I love candy. But folks, Easter is about the resurrection of our Lord. And in fact, Easter, if you think about it, is really about death. Resurrection Day is about death. It is about the death of a death that was died on the previous Friday. It is about the death which Jesus accomplishes by his resurrection. Jesus obliterates, destroys, crushes death forever through his real, physical, material, bodily Resurrection, and that is a thing to announce. This day is a conquest. This day is not an acquiescence to some faint, fleeting, vaporous wish. This is a day of triumph. Now let's do three things very quickly. Let's look at the event. And then let's ask, where are we without it? And then let's, let's try to think, and I want to ask each of you to do this. I want to ask each of you thoughtfully, soberly, not knowing where all of you are, knowing where some of you are, knowing that there may be some here for whom this is so much foolishness and silliness. For some, it is... It is the contemplation of something that they wish and long for to give them hope. For others, it is a familiar thing. Wherever you are on that path, along that pilgrimage, please let me ask you at the end of this sermon to be thinking, what is the significance of this for me? So let's ask, what went on? Where are we without it? And then let's try to apply it. Let's take a look at the event first. Here are just a couple of things to recognize. First, something happened. I know, I know that some of you find this very tedious. You find it very tedious, maybe, that at Christmas and Easter I always ask this question. Why do we do this? 
Why do we celebrate at Christmas? Why do we put up trees and lights and all the rest? And why do we put these lilies here? The answer to that is something happened. Something really and truly happened. And everything is different because of that. Everything is different because of that. The thing that happened and the thing which validates every other thing that happened connected to Jesus' earthly life and existence, the thing that validates his incarnation as something significant, his growth through life as something significant, his life of perfect obedience as something significant. And by the way, read the gospel narratives and you will see that in the gospel narratives, nobody, including one of the dying thieves, nobody could bring a charge against him. And the other dying thief admitted as much. We're getting what we deserved. He's done nothing to warrant this. But you see, the only thing that validates his incarnation, his life of obedience, is his resurrection. The only thing that makes Good Friday Good Friday, striking, isn't it, that the markets are closed on Good Friday? Why? Because something really happened. It happened at a point in time, a place, and that event, this resurrection, divides human history in half so that everything on the other side of this event looks forward to it and everything on this side of that event looks back at it. The event has divided all of human history and it doesn't matter what your belief system is. Wherever you go in this world, there's one calendar that governs the whole thing. This is March 31st, 2013 A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. I've told you about my, my new friend. I'm not a friend to him, but he's a friend to me. His name is Robert Greenberg. And he's produced these lectures that I've listened to about music. And, and in the first series of lectures that I listened to, he went through this dog and pony show about nomenclature and how we date things. And, and he doesn't like to use B.C. and A.D., I suspect, because it's not politically correct. So he would rather... He would rather use this nomenclature, this way of identifying things, before Christian era and after Christian era. Is there a difference? <laughs> I don't care what language you use. The fact of the matter is something decisive really did happen, and it divides history in half so that that event acts like a huge hinge holding the two halves of history together. B.C.E. C.E. B.C.A.D. Gorbel Norbel. I don't care what you call them. It is the resurrection of Christ that divides all of human history into these two great epochs. So something happened and no other event has so affected the history of the world as this event. More specifically, what is it that happened? Simply put, this is what happened. The body of Jesus, crucified on Good Friday, having died a real death, was laid in a tomb, 
and did not undergo decay. Did not undergo decay. In fact, that body of Jesus wrapped in those grave cloths took on new properties and power was transformed and yet was touchable, recognizable, and as real to those who touched him and saw him as you are to each other this morning. When Jesus spoke that tender word to Mary, It was a real voice that she heard. It was not a figment of her imagination. Real air passed across the vocal cords. A real word was formed in the mind of the risen and glorified, transformed Jesus. And that word made its way to his mouth and his tongue. And he spoke that tender word, Mary, Mary, it is I. It is Jesus. And the only thing that she knew to do in that moment was to grab him around his ankles. Real ankles attached to real legs, attached to a real torso. Touchable. What happened? John describes it for us in verses 5 and 6 and 7 in his gospel. Again, each of the gospel writers includes a narrative of the resurrection. You can read them. You should read them. You should read all four of them. And you should look for the little details that each of them captures in in his narratives. But John was an eyewitness. John actually the second person to the tomb. This is a stunning thing. It's one of the things that that moves me deeply, and it doesn't just move me deeply. It's moved people deeply across the centuries. The first person to come to the tomb after the angels was a woman. Was a woman. There's a whole apologetic thing that can be made out of that fact. Why would gospel writers in a chauvinistic culture, a male-dominated culture, a culture in which the testimony of women and Gentiles was not admissible in either a Jewish court or women in a Roman court, Why would their testimony be included in documents designed to persuade people of the truthfulness of this? Politically incorrect if you're in that day. A woman. But the second person who gets to the tomb is John. And Peter, apparently not in quite the physical condition that John was in, got there a bit later. But Peter, ever the pretentious one, went into this sacred and holy place. And then John went in. And to summarize what they saw, 
It is simply this. They saw this 75 to 100 pounds of linen wrappings and spices all wrapped together to preserve the body. They saw this wrapping in perfectly ordered, symmetrical condition simply collapsed in place. That's what the language means. John Stott, we typically have copies of this book, and we do have some. John Stott, in his book, Basic Christianity, talks about this, gives a wonderful description of what it is that Peter and John saw when they went into that tomb. The point is, nobody came into the tomb, ripped the linen cloths off of the body, and took the body out of the tomb. The body simply passed through the grave cloths. And then under the weight of the spices, those linens simply collapsed in place. I was thinking about this this morning. I've done plenty of funerals. I've seen plenty of caskets. This is the impact. This is the implication of what is here. Imagine if you can a casket that is closed, a casket that is in the ground, and you take that casket out of the ground and you flip open that that closed casket, expecting to find a body in that casket, but the body is simply gone. And the dress or the suit or whatever it is that that person was buried in is perfectly shaped to the contours of the body of the person placed in that casket, placed in the ground, except collapsed in place. Why? Because the body is no longer there to sustain it. That's what they saw. The body was simply gone. Now, people have argued, and sometimes I do want to pick a fight. And this is a fight I want to pick. And if you're here as one who wants to engage in this fight. It will be peaceful and it will be loving, but it will be resolute. There are folks across the last century and a half, beginning in the early part of the 19th century to the middle part of the 19th century, who have sought to explain this apparent resurrection And one of the explanations that is offered is that the disciples made it up. After all, they had associated with Jesus. They had followed him around. They had, as the two disciples on the road to Emmaus acknowledged, they had pinned all of their hopes on him. Those two disciples said, we we had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. But their hopes are buried in a tomb, wrapped in a hundred pounds of cloths and spices. And so, you know, ego is ego after all, isn't it? And who wants to say, I was wrong? And so the disciples conspired together to make up this story, fabricate this story of the resurrection. 
But here's the thing you can't account for according to that kind of a scenario. All of these disciples maintained their adherence to this belief, to this conviction throughout the rest of their lives. Many of them dying as they continued to believe it. I mentioned this, made reference to this a couple of months ago, I know. When Lance Armstrong's deceit was exposed and it became clear that Lance Armstrong had devised this this great falsehood regarding his cycling achievements. And one by one, his followers, his loyal followers who benefited from him in millions of dollars worth of benefit, one by one, his loyal followers, Floyd Landis, George Hinkepi, and the rest, ratted him out and ratted one another out. Why? To save their own skins. They gave up the ruse. They told the truth. The disciples never caved because there was no ruse. There was no deceit. They were telling the truth. They continued to tell the truth. Christ died and was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures, in the same body in which He died, never to die again. I've got to read this this poem for you. I've read it before. I keep looking around for something better from a source that I would find and you would find even more strikingly compelling. But all I can come up with is John Updike's seven stanzas at Easter. Make no mistake, if he rose at all, it was as his body. If the soul's, if the cell's dissolution did not reverse, the molecules re-knit, the amino acids rekindle, the church will fall. It was not as the flowers each soft spring recurrent. Food for the Easter lilies. It was not as the flowers, each soft spring recurrent. It was not as his spirit in the mouths and fuddled eyes of the eleven apostles. It was as his flesh, ours. The same hinged thumbs and toes, the same valved heart that pierced, died, withered, paused, and then regathered out of enduring might new strength to enclose. Let us not mock God with metaphor, analogy, sidestepping transcendence, making of the event a parable, a sign painted in the faded credulity of earlier ages. Let us walk through the door, The stone is rolled back, not paper mache, not a stone in a story, but the vast rock of materiality that in the slow grinding of time will eclipse for each of us the wide light of day. 
And if we will have an angel at the tomb, make it a real angel, weighty with Max Planck's quanta, vivid with hair, opaque in the dawn light, robed in real linen, spun on a definite loom. And let us not seek to make it less monstrous for our own convenience, our own sense of beauty, lest awakened in one unthinkable hour, we are embarrassed by the miracle and crushed by remonstrance. What is remonstrance? Remonstrance, a remonstrance is a well-argued, well-articulated grievance. Let us not, awakened in one unthinkable hour, be embarrassed by the miracle and crushed by the grievance Whose grievance? The grievance of the Lord Jesus Christ, who having died is now alive, will take issue with those who would seek to make of this a mere fancy, a myth, a deceit. There's something serious going on here, folks. And that something serious is a real bodily resurrection. And do you know why this is important? Do you know why this is important? Let me give you a picture of why it is important. This is perhaps one of the most precious pictures in all of the scriptures. Luke 7, verses 11 through 13. You don't have to turn there. I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to tell you that it is the story of Jesus raising the son of the widow at Nain. Jesus is being followed by a massive crowd of people. And as they approach this little village, there is a massive crowd of people coming out of that village. And the two masses of humanity converge upon one another. And what is right in the center of those two massive groups of people is a coffin with a widowed woman's dead son. And Jesus goes to that coffin, does the unthinkable, touches that coffin, speaks to the dead man. And then here's the verse. Here's the verse that matters. Perhaps one of the most beautiful verses in all of Scripture. Are you with me? Some of you know this experience. You've been through this experience. Some of you are facing this experience, whether for yourself or someone whom you love. Are you in the face of that reality going to make the resurrection of Jesus a fancy, a myth? Here is the verse. 
Luke 7, verse 15. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. Jesus gave the object of this woman's love and affection back to her. You know why this matters? Because that matters. This matters because this one, by his victory over death, has gained victory over death for all who trust in him, so that he might be the author, not of a temporary restoration. Oh, that woman's joy in Luke chapter 7 would have been off the charts, but it was temporary. The joy of Mary and Martha would have been off the charts when their brother was raised, but it was temporary. The resurrection of Jesus is for you and me the prospect of the restoration of things we most deeply long for. I'm going to tell you another story. I've told it before again. It's not like I'm lazy and I'm just using familiar illustrations. But I've told you this story and I will tell it again and then we'll bring this to a close. Barb and I were living in Orlando. We had lots of seminary students who worshipped with us. And in our first year in Orlando, a young seminary couple learned that they were expecting. My wife always corrects me. It's not they who are expecting. She is the one who is expecting. And then I got a call. I was in my office. I was actually sitting in Bill's office. I got a call from Bill. Bill and his wife had just been to see their OBGYN. And he called to tell me that they were having twins. And my first line was to say, and they're not joined at the hip, right? And he said, no. They're joined at the chest. They share a heart and a liver. About ten days later, those precious little girls suffered a massive coronary, a heart attack, six-chamber heart serving these two little girls. I went to Philadelphia to be with Bill and Patty while they performed a surgery in an attempt to save one of the little girls. The other girl died in the midst of the surgery. The one they'd hoped to be able to save died about 11 hours later. Folks, so absolutely certain am I of the resurrection of Jesus and what it means for you and me that I was able to stand in the midst of a group of hundreds of people who had come to worship God 
support Bill and Patty and remember the reason for their hope and say to them, say to Bill and Patty, you know, the day is coming when you will see your little girls again. Why? Because they're innocent? No. No. Because Jesus is gracious and Jesus died to reverse all of the horrific effects of the fall. And one of those effects is the death of your little girls. And because Jesus is not finished and because Jesus is about the business of bringing total renovation and restoration to all things, his return will mean for you, Bill and Patty, that you will see those little girls again and they will say to you, come with us and let us show you what we've seen. And there will be one for each of you and each for both of you. That is what the resurrection means. Death steals everything precious to you. Jesus Christ gives it back. And so where are you without it? Let me quote the Apostle Paul. If the dead are not raised, Christ is not raised. And if Christ is not raised, you are still in your sins. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And what Paul very clearly means by that is what awaits us is simply the abyss, the nothing. If Christ is not raised... You are still in your sins. Let us eat and drink. In other words, load it up right now. Because in five minutes or five days or five months or five years or five decades, it's over. Samuel Beckett, in his novel, Waiting, For Godot writes, They are born astride a grave. The light glimmers for a while, and then all is dark. Christ is not raised. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And so the application, very simple. Please take this question with you. It's the question that was asked at the beginning. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, what then? Christian Church affirms that because Christ has died, any and all who come to him, in him will die. And having attached themselves to him in his death, they may be assured that they have forever attached themselves to him 
in his life. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus.